welcome to Burgers, Beers and Books. I'm Ben Hobson and I'm here interviewing your favourite authors about their favourite novels. And if we're lucky, we might have a beer and a burger while we're at it. This week, we have the awesome and generous Kate Mildenhall. She's written two amazing books. And the first book she wrote was this book called Skylarking. It's this beautiful novel about sisters and there's a lighthouse and this island. It's really, really well done. And then the the latest one she wrote came out at the end of last year called The Mother Fault. And that's much more of a big blockbustery kind of novel. There's science fiction, um, there's all these layers in there, there's a few action scenes, but at the same time, she's got this real heart in there and some complex themes, which are, which are awesome. So I really recommend you reading uh, both of her novels because she's a remarkable writer. And on top of that, she also manages to run or co-run a great Australian writing podcast called The First Time Podcast. And she runs that with Catherine Collette and it's one of my favorite commute listens. I often just enjoy hearing the two of them talk, but they interview some great authors. So if you haven't checked that out, I do recommend you having a look at that as well. I really enjoyed chatting with Kate. It was a little, I have to admit, it was a little intimidating because Kate is such a great interviewer. So you'll hear a couple of times in the interview, she starts asking me questions. That's part of the fun. That's kind of the vibe of what we're doing here, just having chats about some of our author's favorite novels. And Kate actually chose a really interesting thing. It isn't a novel. And I have to admit also, without spoiling too much, it's also not even aimed primarily at adults. So really interesting thing to have a look at. I'm really glad that I've read this short story. So thank you, Kate, for introducing me. Without further ado, here's Kate and I having a chat, having a beer. Unfortunately, sans burgers, but we explain that. But anyway, hope you enjoy the podcast. Kate and I, uh, unfortunately, don't have burgers. Kate, hello. Hello. Hi. How are you? I did have a burger, though. Did you have a burger tonight? I Well, so the plan was to have a burger. My my wife was going to be home, and I was going to have a burger, and it was going to be 7 o'clock record. It was going to be a bit later than normal dinner time with the kids, but I was going to save it, and then I could eat it with you. But yeah. unfortunately, uh, my wife, Lena, uh, double booked a thing. And so I had to take care of it. We bumped it back. So I had to eat before record. I'm sorry. Okay. That's okay. Um, Did you, what What was on your burger is what I want to know. Did you well, have jalapenos? No jalapenos. No. Good. Do you have jalapenos? I do. Just oh. me. No one else in the family does. I have oh. jalapenos and halloumi. So, oh I don't my know. That- gosh. A halloumi. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. well, we're talking to someone fancy here, I can see. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm only I, fancy on Wednesday nights. <laughs> <laughs> I actually made, I actually cooked something. I made something called a cowboy jam. And it uh, it was good. It has bacon and onion and then you have like apple cider vinegar, barbecue sauce. You're supposed to have whiskey, but I don't have any whiskey. And like there was because something Because you've drunk else it all or...? Just oh. don't have spirits in the house. I've actually, it is the year, it's a milestone birthday for me this year. And I have become, for the first time, grown up and actually started drinking whiskey this year. It's great. And uh, anyway, you're drinking a beer though. Can you tell us about what beer you're drinking? I am. I'm actually drinking, um, I'm drinking Stone and Wood Pacific Ale in a can. I'm, I'm drinking outside of Victoria. Apologies, Victorian brewers, but we went camping 
last week. Mm. And the beauty of camping these days, as opposed to 20 years ago, is you can take everything in cans now. You can take all the good beer in cans. So this yes. is, um, I did actually hope that I had some Sailor's Grave, which is brewed in Orbost, left. But, That's your um, favourite? That's your go-to? Well, if if we are going up to that end of um, Vic, we always pick up. So you can get it down here, but we always pick up some Sailor's Grave. Okay. Um, I'm a pale ale girl normally. Really? What are you drinking? I am. I am. A- I am having a uh, – this is actually a bit of a go-to for me. This is a soul beer oh. and it's a cerveza. It's very- and. I- it's very Brisbane. I feel like like you do not have a jumper on. You've got lime no. in your beer. I mean, I, like well, the, the problem is I'm Victorian. Up there. I'm Victorian, yeah, right. so any temperature in Queensland is too hot. It's always humid, mm-hmm. and so yes, I always have lighter, refreshing thing. I've got a little thing of lime in yeah. there. Yeah, it's, um, it's fancy. You look like you're on holiday, mate. Well, you know, talking to you is is like a holiday. <laughs> it's like a right. I think we should put that. Put that uh, as, the, um, as the promo material. Yeah. Talking to Kate Milton Hall like a holiday. Like a holiday. Just chill vibes, holiday. lovely chill. times. Um, how are things with you, Kate? I have lots of things to talk about, especially this wonderful odd pick you've picked for the second. We haven't, we have, oh, you've actually got the book there. That's awesome. I've got it. But look, it doesn't even, the cover, it's like so, oh, my, I gave it to my sister oh. in 1984. So it's, wow. you know, heritage, mate. That's well um, loved. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Carry no, on. no. I mean, no, I'm excited. So I, I, we don't, I haven't really figured out what this is yet, but pretty much what we do is we talk to authors about their favorite things and just something they want to talk about. Because I, I love hearing authors talk about the books that shaped them, the books that made them. And so obviously I presented that to you. And this, I think, was just... Bram Presser last month had like 10 choices and he could never decide, but you settled on this pretty quick. Well, I did. And it was partly because I obviously writers get asked this question all the time, right? Like what's your, you know, favorite novel or the, what's your the book that yeah. made the biggest yeah influence on you or whatever. And recently I got to speak to Tegan Bennett Daylight, the amazing Tegan Bennett Daylight. And she'd asked a similar thing, you know, books that the book that had the greatest influence on you. Mm. And so I put, like Bram, I put forward six and or, or eight and um, I didn't realise that everyone else on the podcast series had been very grown up about it and just chosen one and <laughs> Tegan had just let me run with it and have my whole eight. Um, oh, I see. And, yeah. And so what I decided this time was that I was going to try and be grown up in the sense that I would just choose one. Mm. But then the pressure, like I must say to you, Ben Hobson, the pressure it says so much about you, whatever book you choose. So then I decided I'd just go right back and choose a very, very early influence. I know. And I I feel, thank you for braving it. And I I do feel, because someone actually asked me the other night, I was having dinner with someone and they asked, um, what would you choose? And I couldn't think of what I would choose. I have no clue. I can't narrow it down myself. So I'm, I'm really sorry. No, that's absolutely fine. But you haven't read this book. We haven't named it yet. Do, are you waiting for some kind of drum roll to name it? Sort of. I just, before we get to it, I do want to ask <laughs> about good. you a little okay. bit, if that's all right. So, yeah, we are okay. going to just Go for it. foreshadow as hold we there. do. Yeah, hold it. Um, but so, obviously, uh, Kate, you are a very uh, wonderful person in general, but very accomplished <laughs> in many different <laughs> fields. Yes. Oh, well, you know, I know you okay. Maybe Michael Lumi Burgers. 
Yeah. For instance. By the way, by the way, the choice of the burger and the beer, I think, says a lot about you as well. I'm sorry. Mm, Don't really? you think? What I is, think so. Well, yeah, I do. I do actually. I had I had that. cowboy jam, and you had yeah halloumi. Yeah. And can I say something too about the meat that I sure. used to make the burger? Because this is sure. very important, and you may appreciate this. I'm excited. Is that um. People, listeners to your podcast may know, you kind of know that I'm writing about meat for my next book um, mm. in, in various forms and in particular in abattoirs. So I recently was on a writing retreat in Musk near Dalesford and mm. there's a farm, a little farm there, Jonai, Jonai Farms, um, that I'd been meaning to get to that do all their own um, butchery. And so, anyway, so I I went off mid writing retreat because, of course, like research, right? If you go yes. along to the butchers, if Absolutely. you're writing a book about meat, it's just been a gift. And um, oh my gosh, little shipping container at the edge of this farm, and mm-hmm. we walked in, and Meg, my friend, and I both walked out with like you know 150 dollars worth. I bet, of I bet you did. Meats and bacon and whatever, and this incredible mince, which is what I cooked the burgers with um, tonight, including. Oh, sounds amazing. This could be controversial, Ben. I okay. did include some grated apple in my burgers. I know. What? Look at your face. I know, right? No, but I'm just sort of struck, struck by the brilliance of yeah. that. Well, I've never I don't know who to told me to do it. It's either my best friend or my mother-in-law. I can't remember. Um Told a me, little yeah. bit of like a sweet, a sweet hit to the, yeah. to the meat, a little bit. Mm. Oh my! Mm-hmm. I, know. I feel crazy, right? Stop the podcast! <laughs> like that's <laughs> that's a that's a scoop. I'm amazed. That's so good. I'll have to try that. What an amazing idea! Okay. Yeah, go go with it. Now, I did not intend this to be about meat, though. So carry on. I just get very <laughs> excited about it at the moment. No, I'm excited too. Well, hey, that's actually what was one of my questions was, was about what you're working on. So you sort of answered mm-hmm. that a little bit. Um, I also want to just talk about the mother fault. And I guess because you've had a, a teeny weeny little bit of space since its release, but obviously it's still going huge and like awards. And I've got a couple science, best science fiction novel in the Orealis. How crazy was that? That's amazing. That was really exciting. That was really it's absolutely exciting. huge. And the yeah. general fiction book of the year as well as the yeah. ABIAs. That's yeah. I mean, it's an accomplished it's been, book. It's been fun. It's been it's been fun, and it's lovely to see because I don't know if you have that feeling, but when it ticks over into the next year, and then all the new books are coming, and especially when you're involved in the industry and you're like getting sent books because of the podcast and stuff. <laughs> sure, and, yeah. And there's that kind of overwhelm where you're like, okay, well, that's it then, right? Because there's like 50,000 new amazing books out and that's just by Australian writers. And um, so I'm done. So every time now <laughs> that someone messages me or posts something about the book, I'm like, oh, my gosh, thank you so much. Whereas in that first few weeks when your book just comes out, you know, like sometimes you miss messages or you. Yeah, it's a I flurry. Don't know, you don't. Yeah, it's such a flurry, exactly. Um, so it's really nice. And I've got the UK release coming up. And thankfully, so, so wonderfully for the UK, things are starting to look a little bit um, better over them there for them because that was sure. kind of so awful just talking to my team over there and they were like, what do you mean you've been on holiday? And they still hadn't been out of their house. So yeah, I'm, I'm really glad for the UK people. Yeah, and that and is awesome. Everyone else. And it's good that um, yeah. 
you've got that thing to look forward to too because it's uh and obviously you've got the new thing because you've got that all sorted and you've got all this stuff lined up so that must be a really accomplished well, feeling when we say sorted ben i mean the new thing is not completely sorted no but <laughs> no but you know what you're doing you have a plan i do you know what a, i'm doing have, have a, a time plan. frame you know you've got things yeah. going yeah so that must be nice because yeah. i feel like a lot of the time writing it's kind of like well, at least for me, it's sort of you just stare at a wall and you're sort of like, oh, I guess I'll do this for a little bit. And there's sort of less of a yeah. a path that's concrete and you can sort of make up stuff. But you've got this definite couple of years mapped out around me. Yeah. Well, you know, and people um, tend to be in two camps in the writerly world about like whether you should, you know, sign a, a contract for a book that hasn't been written mm. yet or whether deadlines are a good thing or not. And for me deadlines are a good thing because other I otherwise I just you know procrastinate till the end of time um yep. so that has been really good and I do have to keep reminding myself like this is a great privilege to have this moment to th- this kind of couple of years where I can um afford to write and just concentrate on the books so it's I amazing. Uh, should be doing it and not you know I don't know trying to match the socks and binge on Netflix <laughs> And the other that get in the way. <laughs> oh man! If you had, yeah, if you had to make a list of all the ways in which I don't write, it would be. Oh. I would make me so sad. Yeah, yeah, I know. Just like endless YouTube rabbit warrens of dumb videos, and then you look up two hours later, and you're like, "Well, could have done something productive." Or where did that go? Where yeah. did that go? Yeah, yeah. Um. So we're talking about this wonderful short story and it's called the selfish giant and it was published in if i'm reading correctly 1888 and now this the reason this is different when i when i set out to do this and talk to authors about their favorite novels i thought they would be novels and this is just a short story and it's been published many many times over the course of the hundred years and there's lots of different pictures of it and i'm not at all diminishing it saying it's just a short story it is a fantastic story um but it's aimed at children as well which was another little oddity that you sort of threw at me because i had you know <laughs> such a different vibe from bram like we had we we're talking about you know some really oh my gosh, traumatic- listening to your conversation with bram yes <laughs> i was like <laughs> wow i've really it's gonna be quite a uh, quite a jump it is, but that's the fun. This is what I like. I like this stuff. I like that you've chosen this. So um, can I say, so The Selfish Giant, and now if any of our listeners want to actually go and read this, you can read it for free. There's lots of places it's published online. Um, yeah. If you want a copy like what Kate has with you the have- story, yeah. So mine is the one that's illustrated by Michael Foreman and Freya Wright. It's the picture puffin classic with it, with it, um, I'll give you a picture of this so you can post it, but the giant's head is is very, very big and he has a very strange mustache. Anyway, he's that's kind my of a copy. Little, which... He's a little bit of a scary-looking giant, your copy. Very scary. He is. I mean, is he not scary in other copies? Well, I see, I've only read, I only read the text, so I only read the original short story. So I had pictured the giant in my own head and he was much friendly a giant. He sort of looked like... Yeah, um, I mean, look how scary he is there. Yeah, that's terrifying with the eyebrow. Yeah. That's full on. Super scary. 
But um, Kate, so Kate's showing me through the video that she's showing me her copy <laughs> and it's literally falling apart. So I feel like it, it must has- be one of the most well-loved books. It is so well-loved. So this copy, I actually, it says in here, um, it says to dear Maggie, who's my sister with love from Kate in June 1984, which which is the year she was born. So um, I was three. I was three. So, but I can remember my mum reading it to me and we had this copy, but it's also published in um, The Happy Prince and other stories. And and so we had I that, saw that too, yeah. but we also had... The, uh, another little copy of the Happy Prince, um, which and those two were absolute favourites in our mm. house. So mm. I was actually reading it to my daughter, um, who I've read it to before, but I was reading it to my daughter this week as I was like going back over it in preparation sure. for our conversation, Ben. Oh, I appreciate and it. I couldn't, I could not um, do the rhythm of the sentences in any other way than that which my mum had done for me. Like, you know, it's so stuck in my head. That's amazing um, though. Yeah, that I that 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 is, you know, and that's one of the reasons that I honestly that I chose it because um, I'm pretty sure too that very early on and I can't remember if it was actually my my um my darling husband or potentially someone else who I was who I had in my childhood bedroom, who I was showing, uh, you know, who was looking at my, who was looking at my bookshelf and said, you know, what is your favorite book? Um, and I yeah. la- only laugh about that because my husband would not necessarily ask that first about you. What is your favorite book? So that's sure. why it could have been someone else. Sure. And I remember saying, this is it, you know, at whatever I was then. A, a that's amazing. And- a young person, Oscar Wilde's The Selfish Giant. It is my favourite book. That's so cool. And it's so cool you've still got it. Like I, I feel like I've lost nearly all of my my books from when I was a really little kid. Yeah, well, through moving and all those sorts of different things and just, you know, mum and dad might not understand the things that are important to me yeah. when I'm a 30-year-old man, you know, like what I cared about as a teenager, if mum and dad said, hey, can we get rid of this? I probably would have just gone. So that's really cool. You've still got it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I um, was raised by teachers uh, and they, and English teachers (laughs) at that. My hat's Um, off to them. They had lots of books and they kept them all. And then we have, my sister and I have like slowly kind of snuck out our, our most favorite, but still it's astonishing how many times I'll kind of call the library of mum and dad as well. It's not the bank of mum and dad in our case. It's the library of mum and dad. <laughs> this, you know, very out of print, like random book on labor history or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it somewhere. I'll find it for you. Um, so, yeah, not only picture books, but other books. The library of mum and dad is very effective. Hey, can I ask, what, what, how have they gone with their rising superstar on the literary scene daughter who's publishing ah. books now? They must be stoked. They are stoked. Um, They're excellent early readers for me. They have uh, varying, varying kind of funny feedback. I've, I've appeared at their book club, um, which is a very serious kind of book club. And they Uh uh, definitely do, you know, ask the big questions, uh, which is terrific. Um, And the other funny thing that's happened to (laughs) mum 
more with the public opinion of the mother fault is that a couple of a couple of girlfriends have called her and said, "Wow, you know, how do you feel about the sex in the book?" <laughs> it's just the funniest thing that um that uh, mum's like, "Oh, you know, well, well, you know, it's, it's very good." I don't know what she how just do you answer it's, that. It's yeah. So funny. How do you answer that? I don't. Yeah. I don't know how to answer it, but let alone mum to her friends. So um no, they're very they're they love it and they're massive readers. They um yeah they're massive readers so it's good we always I I trust their opinion but yeah, also so trust cool. I do a thing where if I'm sending out a copy uh, like in a draft to in my agent or editor mm. I send it to mum at the same time and it's kind of like my insurance policy because I know that if I'm going to get you know harsh feedback from my editor mum's still going to say it's ace. So, I, you know, I'm going to be kind of shored up emotionally. You'll have someone there to help, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Smart. I should do that. My mum my mom and dad, uh, I'll, I'll say it, and I know mum listens to this because mum does and listens to Hello, every- Ben's mum. Yes. <laughs> Lovely. She reads everything I write. She, When I was in a punk band, she used to come to the gigs and she used to, like, mm. block her ears and stand at the back and we're, like, smiling and she's the Love best. Love it. Yeah, she's really good. But anything I write is just the best book of all time and et cetera. And dad's, uh, dad tries to read my books, but he, he has this habit of falling asleep. <laughs> and he assures me it's not because of my writing, but he just, that's what he does. He falls asleep. So he then tried to listen to an audio book and he did a bit better with that. So excellent. But those are my that's early good. readers. Yeah. Um, that's crazy. So we've got the selfish giant and, uh, in the copy that I saw online, let me just find it here. It says it's about five pages or it was originally about five pages. And I'm assuming yours is a bit longer with all the pictures or is it still a bit longer? No, it's a bit longer with all the pictures. Yeah. Um, I couldn't tell you. There's a there's a there's a, a a good paragraph of text on each page. Okay, it's so it's about, a quite a bit. But it's not as long as I've just been reading back over the Happy Prince, and it's not as long as the Happy Prince. That's a bit more text heavy. Oh, okay, interesting. I wonder if we've got even different sort of portions of text. Like, I wonder how it changes, and whether or not you know each different person who writes or paints or draws the pictures would choose different parts of it to put in beside it. I don't know yeah. whether it changes much. I think they do. I think even just at sentence level, sometimes they, they cut a bit as they, um you know, as they do the retellings or whatever. I noticed yeah, sure. that there was, because after I chose it, I obviously then had a complete panic attack that um I was not a wild scholar, nor am I a fairy tale scholar or, you know, myth, whatever scholar Me and that I needed to study it to um, understand more about it, which I then failed to have time to do. But I did <laughs> notice in my first Google that like, there's a lot, there's a lot of films, there's operas, there's, you know, like yeah. a lot of people have interpreted this. Yeah. So, yeah and it, it seems to be this enduring way. thing. Like I, I have to say, I've never read, Oscar Wilde as because I said that to Danny the other day and she gasped. Yep, as, as I, I just did, but I pulled away from the microphone. So I'm sorry. Know. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> Pro professional recorder interviewer person. Um, but, yeah, I've never read Oscar Wilde. I don't know why. It's just sort of someone who skipped out of my 
to be read pile and just never so I'm I'm grateful that I've now read Oscar Wilde in some yeah. capacity. Well, and and I think that you need to go back and definitely read The Happy Prince as well. That's an absolute um gem. And then I reckon I don't know if we did the importance of being earnest at school or at uni. I know that I studied um, and I remember um, we were very lucky because mum and dad were teachers partly. They had long service leave and we, when I was in year nine, which wasn't great timing, let's admit, being in year <laughs> nine, um, yeah. they took me, they took us out of school and we went to Europe in a, and travelled around in a combi van, which was amazing. I sound like amazing. a privileged twat saying, uh, you know, it wasn't great to be taken out of school. Wow. But of course, I just wanted to be home at the parties, you know, and there weren't phones back then in the olden days. No, look, but I've we, been there. Yeah. So yeah, we did go it. though in Paris to um to the cemetery Père Lachaise and to visit his tomb, to visit the grave of Oscar Wilde. And wow. um I think maybe we took a flower. I know that the tradition is to kiss the tomb. Um but I, I think they've actually people have actually damaged it because they've kissed it so wow. much. But um but I think that we left a flower there. And you know, I was a very kind of I think year nine, when I was in year nine, was like peak Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. Like it was, you know, these were days of, been, yeah. of big feelings and um, just throwing yourself at the tomb of Oscar Wilde was kind of very in vogue for me and my my gang. Wow. What a history. Mm. That's so cool. I know. Um, <laughs> you've got much better history with Oscar Wilde than I do. Um <laughs> at, the thing that struck me when I first read it, because I've read it a few times now, the thing that struck me yep. was just it's completely not subtle at all in like it's linked to Christianity at all. Yes. And I was no. kind of struck by that because it's so obviously different to the tone of most writing that you read nowadays is that yeah, there's no subtlety to it. It's just I actually have the quote. Where is it here? It says, this is the near the end. It says, Downstairs ran the giant in great joy and out into the garden. He hastened across the grass and came near to the child. And when he came quite close, his face grew red with anger. And he said, Who hath dared to wound thee? For on the palms of the child's hands were the prince of two nails, and the prince of two nails were on the little feet. Which is quite sweet, the way he words that, eh? Um, I know. Like trying to explain. Can you imagine my mum trying to explain stigmata to a four-year-old? Like... Did right. Not, you know, I, and and actually when I read it again, I was like, oh, shit, I forgot how kind of, <laughs> you know, Christian it was in, yeah, at yeah. the end. But I remember also as a kid because um, we weren't uh, churchgoers in, in any way, shape or form. Mum was brought up Catholic. Um, so she also was very good at, at giving the background or giving the stories. Adding and context, so yeah. Giving, yeah, giving the context. but. But, like, as a kid when I would have first been reading this, I was just like, I, I have no idea what what that is. I, I don't even know what that's what that's talking about, how is who, what do you mean he's meant to be Jesus? I don't yeah, get it. It's this complete less turn. Yeah. Um, but, and then later, I suppose when I was about nine or ten, I got really, really cross in about the same phase and my my ten year old daughter has done this as well, where I turned vegetarian. Um, and mm. you know, you get all the kind of you, you, which I'm clearly no longer anymore. No longer. I was going to say the start um, of this conversation yeah, is the meatball. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, when you get very suddenly very strident about your views, I yeah, was like sure. so 
anti-religion and particularly sure. anti-church and anti-Catholic church. Um, so it is really interesting choice and you can't kind of get around the fact that that, that no. this little boy is, um, you know, is taking the giant, um, the big grumpy giant at the end, you know, to his the kingdom of paradise. heaven, to, yeah. Earth, to paradise. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I guess I wanted to, to talk to you about it because it's it's didactic in a way that I don't think a book would get away with nowadays, mm. at least not that I've read, not like just on the front message. And then I actually did a bit of reading about Oscar Wilde's relationship to Christianity, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, Oscar Wilde um, actually went to prison. And what was the charge? Yeah. It was down here. What was it? Uh, forgotten what the I don't name even know what is. they would have called it back then. It was something. It was something like indecency. It was something like yeah. you know something a big yeah. banner title to talk about homosexuality, really. Yeah. And he went to jail for that for two years into reading jail. And he wrote this book called yeah. Deep. Oh, sorry, he wrote a letter to his lover called De Profundis. Yeah, and, the, and I don't know whether you read about it, but it's so strange to read about, and it kind of made me want to actually go and read it because he's yeah, he sounds like he had a really interesting relationship to this idea of faith and God, and then obviously uh, who he was as a person. Yeah, absolutely. and then and then he, uh, but then he also still found obviously because he wrote this story right. There was still an element that he felt, right? Wouldn't you say that's true? Yeah. Or do you, yeah. Do you th- I think do you so. Think, do you think he maybe also was just writing a story and using symbols that he knew for things like redemption? So just yeah. what he was familiar with, because it was it was ten years before he went to jail that he published yeah. this short story. It could be a combo of it. I don't know, but it's just I find it really interesting, his history yeah. and then that this was just so didactic. Yeah, I think I, I just actually read back over the end of um, The Happy Prince as well. And in, in The Happy Prince, um, you know, it's the story of a, a statue and a swallow and the statue's covered in, in gold um, and he has sapphires for eyes and the swallow um, realises that, um, there is much misery in the world and the prince, the statue of the prince knows this as well. And the swallow takes leaf by leaf um, and gem by gem takes the prince's at his request, takes the the statue's um, gold and, and jewels and redistributes the wealth among okay. the poor people of this town until the end um, where exhausted the swallow dies at the feet of the the prince who is no longer got any gold or jewels and the um you know capitalist um unfeeling mayor of the town says you know why have we still got that shabby shabby statue up um take it down melt it down and uh they throw the the statue on the scrap heap with the dead bird but it's heart won't um won't melt and of course again the last page is um and to, you know as a child I still remember weeping at it like just thinking it was the saddest thing I'd ever read mm. um you know and then God you know takes the 
takes the statue and and the swallow up to heaven and and they reign forever in paradise so it's like he um wild kind of takes you to the absolute edge of the human experience i suppose and then um and then gives you some sense of this other um you know, beyond earthly. I'm so not versed at all in any kind of religion that okay. um, I kind of, I kind of just, um, I suppose in lots of ways I avoid talking about it except for when I go, okay, well, what is the, um, what I, I found myself more interested in going back and going, well, mm. what is the kind of Bible story there? I've got, um, for instance, I've been doing lots of reading about the crucifixion because, it's an image that I want to use in my book now. And yeah, so, sure. you know, so for that reason, I have to do the reading as I would about, about anything else. That's any type of research. Yeah. Um, exactly. it, sound, it sounds like that story, it sounds like he, and what you're describing. And I guess with the selfish giant too, he kind of seems to take his characters to this really deep point of suffering. But yeah. then he shows that the way out of suffering for Oscar Wilde was through Christ, at least in his stories. Yeah. Um, and then I actually got a quote from him, and this is actually from De Profundis. He said, mm. I've said of myself that I was one who stood in symbolic relations to the art and culture of my age. And then he's writing from prison. So he says, there is not a single wretched man in this wretched place along with me who does not stand in symbolic relation to the very secret of life for the secret of life is suffering. Mm. And I would actually, I'm just thinking about what you just said about, um, you know, how he finds redemption. And I would actually say that, that yes, you could argue that it is through Christ. Um, certainly as a child, and my understanding of both these stories is that it was through love and love as per stuff, you know, and, and love, as equal to suffering as well. Love is like um, as a, and like I think a that potentially I, I, Yeah. Um, or, or also that kind of, um, I think, I think the little boy. So, so the, the story of the selfish giant is that, you know, the, the, the giant um, has a castle with a garden and the giant has been away for seven years. He's been visiting the Cornish ogre, which, which I just love. I actually um, have that as is, one of my favorite sentences is that little line oh my God. about the Cornish ogre. Let me read it. Um, yeah, so, go ahead. One day the giant came back. He had been to visit his friend, the Cornish ogre, and had stayed with him for seven years. After the seven years were over, he had said all that he had to say for his conversation was limited and he determined to return to his own castle. I loved that. And also, can you imagine me as a six-year-old going, huh, I suppose after seven years you might run out of things to say. But also I think my context was like my mum and her best friend, Hilda, who even after seven years would not run out of things to say. So (laughs) it was just, it was the most gorgeous thing. But so he goes away, he comes back and the children have been playing in his garden and he sees the children in his garden and he, he tells them to get out that it's his garden, that it's his property. And he builds um, an enormous fence and he puts um, a big sign up that says trespassers will be prosecuted. And then immediately winter comes and winter stays and, you know, and it's this horrendous endless winter that, that, that doesn't, um, that doesn't stop and and then the wind comes and the hail comes and everyone comes yeah. um, until the children, break, you know, break in. Yeah. Um, 
And and anyway, I I, I I digress because I was going to the end where the little boy who's the one who the giant has to has, has um got the greatest soft spot for, I suppose, in Yeah, in loves the terms. most. Yeah. Yeah, he's had to help him into the um he's had to help him into the tree. And so in exactly that that point where you were reading, the giant says, Who hath dared to wound thee? cried the giant. Tell me that I may take my big sword and slay him. Nay, answered the child, but these are the wounds of love. And gosh, ah, it was yeah, so hard to yeah. understand as a kid. But but I think as I read it back and as my own daughter was kind of saying, What does that what does that, what does that mean? That yeah. Mean, you, you know, um, and and it is, I suppose the idea of, of love and suffering being so deeply connected. Yeah. Deeply connected. That's really cool. I, I think that's really true. I think too, and just by what you described from that other story, which I haven't read, but in the selfish giant, it's like, it's like the giant's asleep to what truly brings meaning. It's like he's yes. cold to it. Right. And he, and he doesn't look to what is actually beautiful, what is actually meaningful. And it's the children that help him sort of mm. awaken him to, okay, this is what beauty is. This is what value is. This is what my life should be about. Yeah. And so there's that in there as well, that that's sort of the thing that offers him redemption is this hope and finding of a, I guess, a heart really yes. in the giant. I um, I was listening. I wanted to listen to it, listen to someone reading, oh, reading it. Cool. So I, I was searching for it. Um, I was searching for it today. And I found a podcast where um, now I will have forgotten what it's called, but it was um, Russell Brand talking about the selfish giant as one of wow. the things that he loved. And it's an extraordinary conversation. And like, you know, he just uh, is so smart uh, mm. in the way he talks about things. So I couldn't even um, begin to be as smart as him. I'll, I'll send you the link so you can pop it. Yes, in please. Yes. But, I would love that. Um, He's talking, he talks at one stage about the idea of when the giant knocks down the wall, when he realizes that he does want all the children in and that they bring spring with them. Um, it is like the invitation to chaos that, you know, that, that as humans, we require, um, mm. we require that connection to chaos and, and the spring and everything that's fertile and alive and messy um, and that that is what life is literally um, and that, that that's what he awakens from too. That's really cool. I hadn't thought of that. I hadn't thought of that, that there was sort of like this this rigid and, you know, I think we've all probably been there in our lives, you know, today. You get the kids home, you get them out of the car, you get them home from footy training, okay, you put your socks in the wash, you go upstairs, you have your shower, you come downstairs, but taking a moment like the giant eventually learns to do to, as you say, just let go of all that silliness and appreciate what you have, really. Yeah. Appreciate the stuff yeah. that's in front of you. And I had that today at their football game where I was striving all day and running, you know, how you go as an adult from one yeah. thing to the next and you rush in the door, you drop, you go to do. And I sat down, I got to watch my kids play their very first football game ever. Love it. And... I put the phone down because I was going to, you know, do some work on the thing and I just watched them and enjoyed them. And that was way better than all the rigidity, I guess, that yeah. we often bring to. And, yeah. I, and, you know, I get the rigidity. I get that there's obviously a lot of 
call to have systems and ways of doing things. It's totally good. But I think if that's all you have, you end up, I guess, kind of being selfish, aren't you? Because everything is sort of systemized to work in your favor, I guess. Yep. Yep. And isn't that what, just as you're saying that, it's making me think about uh, last year and particularly for, um, I know you guys had to do lockdowns too, but we had such a bloody long one down here in Melbourne. And, yeah, you did. Um, but that, but the, what happened is that everyone started like bird watching and noticing flowers in their neighbourhood. And it was that literal like, you know, you couldn't, if, if you wrote it, um, you, you would look like you were writing a fairy tale. You know, like the metaphor is so laboured in a way. <laughs> but that people, <laughs> you know, people were literally stopping all of that stuff was being taken away, all of the the busy and the rush and the rest of it. And people were literally going, oh, hang on a sec, here it is what was right in front of my eyes. You know, that grapevine on my deck really is an astonishing colour of red right now and I will just sit and have my cup of tea and look at it, you know, that, that kind of stuff. And I think maybe that there is a sense in this book, in The Selfish Giant, that has brought me peace throughout my life, you know, like, when I was six, I wasn't rushing around like a mad woman with two children. <laughs> but the idea that um, that playing in the garden and sitting in the tree was an absolutely and utterly valid life choice and it was uh, something that would bring great happiness and, and peace as well, I think. Um, you know, and, and I still now can, can hardly... And hardly read to the end of this book without, um, without, without weeping, um, because of course, because of course, at the end, the 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 giant dies. Um, and even did it strike you in reading those those last parts to just how he's so matter of fact, Wild is yeah. so matter of fact about yes he about is. That. in the end, like the last. Can I read out the just the last? Absolutely, the absolutely. Last Go ahead. In my version. Yeah. So. Um, the very last page, which in my book is this beautiful picture of the giant lying under the blossom tree. Um, And when the children ran in that afternoon, they found the giant lying dead under the tree all covered with white blossoms. It's it's like a killer sentence. It is a killer sentence. And I think that, that the other thing that has been so significant to me about being read to as a child and this book and The Happy Prince and and lots of other books too, which have an astonishing quality to the writing, which which does not in any way patronise or pander to the fact that it is designed to be read to a child, that it is this um, sophisticated language, um, the way the sentences are constructed. I even remember being struck as I went back to read this again and again in primary school, like my teachers are wrong because they keep telling me that sentences can't start with and. They can because Oscar Wilde makes them start with and, and I know he's a really famous writer. You know, That's right. Stuff like that. Just just the way he's so, he's, he's, yeah, such astonishing, um, such an astonishing writer. He's very clear. And I think yeah. that's something that I, I, I'm assuming I do, I think most writers do, is that we strive for clarity. Mm. And 
there's often times we can get lost in the wilderness and and I'll say it, lost up our own backsides trying to sound yeah. fancy. Um, but yeah. there is something really beautiful to simplicity. Um, I think Hemingway said and, that, didn't he? He said that, you know, yeah. big words don't carry big emotions. Like you just get to the heart, get to the root of the thing and be as simple and direct as you possibly can. And I think that's what Oscar Wilde does a lot. He's very, very clear. And it's, well, as you say, it's not dumbing down at all to a, no. to a child's level, but it's just very clear so they would be able to comprehend everything that's going on. Yeah. I think too um, I've had quite a lot of fun both both when I was teaching and more recently working with young writers, um, working with fairy tales um, because they are just, you know, brilliant um mm. the archetypes the the meaning the way that um we we understand them so in instinctively i suppose um the way that that story works and also more recently i suppose the way that you can also um play with them that kind of cultural understanding pop cultural yes. understanding of the disneyfied you know disneyfied fairy tales and the rest of it but one of the great things is in in working with them is is how much kids get about story and plot and meaning and they don't have to get wound up or, or caught up in character stuff because there's not there's, there is no character development in in fairy tales that's not the purpose of them the characters are meant to be archetypal um, yeah yeah and, that's interesting you know and that's what's um what makes them such a great teaching tool and learning tool and, and why why they continue to endure in all the forms that they do. And what's so special, I suppose, about going, um, you know, the, the self, the Oscar Wilde's writing these ones much later than all of those other kind of um, that, that great kind of um, yeah. rush of fairy tales that came out, you know, in the 1600s, but before that um, as well. And yet, he's created these ones that that have absolutely endured and and so there's something about them i think russell brand um russell brand uses the word sublime and i think that there is that as well and i think yeah in in the selfish giant and the reason i think that i i continue to come back to it and and reflect on it as such a favorite book is because i realized even then when I was reading it as a child, that it did something quite extraordinary. What it did to my to my body and my brain, the way that it could make me feel such huge emotions, even though I didn't really fully understand what the story was about. Like that's incredible. That's yes, incredible. And is. I think that, you know, when whenever you're hearing writers talk about um writers being interviewed, they will they will always talk about books that had an influence on them when they were young. And I mm. think that they, I don't know, they get into our DNA or something. They, they do something very well, primal a, to our language. Absolutely. They're formative. They, they as we're yeah. developing as who we are, we get these little imprints from books. And yeah. it's, it's kind of amazing when you think about it like that. I think it's kind of amazing too. Like what you're saying, we just were talking about, our lives now and lessons that we've learned from the selfish giant about taking stock and how does a writer do that how does he write something 
that evergreen or forward thinking where it's a hundred years mm. in the future or past that. And yet we're mm. still talking about it. Like one can only, you know, dream that you could write something yeah. that would be that. It's almost like it's, it's not like it's, it's not like a topic that's relevant, but it's just core. It's core to the human experience. Yeah. Yeah. And it gets, it and, cuts and that, through all the nuts and all the stuff and it doesn't need to be all the things on top of it. And I guess that's what fairy tales do well too. Hey, like it yeah. just cuts to the the heart of a thing that we, every single person has understood. And that is yeah. that sometimes we need to take stock of the things that are beautiful in front of us. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, literally take down the, take down the fences. I think too, Ben, that, children's lit and you know you know coming through as a as a teacher and an English teacher and a massive massive children's lit fan um you know I've always had a lot of picture books in my in my house um but I had the great privilege of going back and doing children's lit as part of the RMIT course as well Mm. um and so learning it and I just think that all writers should do it should you know <laughs> study not necessarily write try try their hand at writing picture books um but but to study them and to see what they what it reveals to them about um the shape of the novels they are writing and about the shape of stories in general and about what you can do with like 300 words um selfish yeah, giant gosh. is more than that you know, but like, but, but we were encouraged to write between 300, you know, like 500 was really pushing it. Um, and to, to try and craft something like that, uh, is, is so much work and it's so hard to get it right, but they are these kind of perfectly formed little worlds and, and meanings. And when you practice that, over and over again, or you just surround yourself with excellent picture books. Mm. Um, and, and there's so many, uh, and your independent bookshop will be able to tell you which ones, um, nice. to, nice. to read, like but you know, it does really, it, it, that, that rhythm and the meaning and those words get, get into you. Um, yeah. and, and I find that kind of stuff really useful for when I'm writing as well, that it's, um, yeah, that it's kind of hitting those, hitting those parts in my brain that are reminding me about brevity and about getting to the point and about, um, having meaning on different levels as well. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's absolutely massive. And I'm, I will take that, I think, away from this conversation. So thank you, Kate. Um, but like that idea of, I think, simplicity. I think that's something that maybe sometimes when we're trying, I know that I've tried to put on airs a little bit through my writing and tried to fancy it up a little bit. But I think that the simple sentence can be the most profound because it's the one that most people can get to the heart of as quickly, I guess. It's not... yeah intellectualizing a thing that's a heart thing. It's just getting to what the heart is and the heart in its way is kind of simple and complex, I guess, at the same time. Um, mm. do, you, do you think when he was writing, do you think he was thinking about this stuff? Like, do you think he was, when he was thinking about crafting this selfish giant, I'm going to put this selfish giant in and then he's going to wake into the beauty of these kids 
and then etc. Or do you think he just came up with this selfish giant and then tried to start to do things with him on like a intuitive level? Uh, wouldn't it just be wonderful to somehow get yourself in a time travel machine and mm. go and sit in his writing room, which I'm sure he had? Um, he had two young kids at at this stage, I think, when he wrote when he wrote these. So, you know, like part of the argument, I suppose, is that he was writing them for his own children. I think also, and I've, um, this doesn't come out of my own head. As I said, I am no wild scholar. Um, this is in some of the stuff that I've read, you know, the idea of um, that he was living potentially with so much shame at that stage too in this yeah. uh, trying to establish or or come to terms with the fact that he was um living in this marriage with these two children and that he was gay and he was in love with another man. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that can be read really clearly in The Giant too. But, you know, I heard um, I heard a great conversation with George Saunders, as they always are, with George Saunders talking about his magnificent book, A Swim in the Pond in the Rain. And um, the interviewer was asking, I think it was Claire Nichols, was asking, you know, did... Chekhov or did Tolstoy, you know, what do you think he meant when he was writing this, this, this story? And Saunders was like, you know, same thing. Wouldn't it be incredible if we knew, but maybe, maybe he wasn't thinking about it. Maybe he didn't go all meta on it. Maybe he just wrote the damn thing and, and he didn't, didn't worry about it so much. So, you know, who knows? I don't know if you have that experience, Ben, when sometimes that you, that you're you write something whether it is something short or in one of your novels in a draft and you have absolutely no idea of what the meaning is until so much later yeah. like like no idea and and someone might point it out to you you know in really late stage editorial and you're like oh yeah cool yeah actually it is about whatever transformation or whatever it is and you're like yeah, yeah. I totally meant that. Or worse, when you're like doing school visits and some smart U10 kid says, so did you mean? And you're like, hmm, well, yes, I had thought about that particular very smart <laughs> of thing that you I just meant said. It. Yeah, I, yeah. Bullshit. I didn't at <laughs> all. I never thought about that. So I, but, but that's that incredible, that's that incredible relationship that, that we get to have as writers with readers and that we get to have as readers with writers who are long dead as well, where you go like, let me pick up your gorgeous gift of a story and mm. let me um, let all of us kind of work out, take our own meaning from it as well. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like a lot of writing is kind of in line with kind of what the selfish giant is about, which is you sort of have to strip away the fuss and to get to something that actually will hit a person, you have to kind of somehow burrow your way into your heart and in the way that you experience things it's it's different to intellectualizing it's different to like a yeah like a brain thing it's like you got to get to the gut of the thing and you've got to and it's just about the stripping away of a lot of it and hopefully yeah. hopefully that will then relate to people and it's almost like I'm not sure if that's what everyone's experience with writing is. Like, I feel like there would be authors and I'm pretty sure I've heard authors talk about, you know, writing to a theme or this is what I was wanting this book to be this gigantic idea. And they really mm. 
ponder it and think it over and then they write it in this way that's really clever and i i love those books and i'm pretty sure i've read those books and they feel effortless when you read them but i don't know whether it's just different for me or whether it's something else or whether they do it as well was this like this you get to the heart of a person in in a a prime way if you like the the best way i've read a book is if you can sense the heart of the person in the book and i think that this story does that in spades Mm. you can get his heart through how simple but how profound and how like we were talking about just how we can still feel the things that he was feeling and you know you were saying you still cry when you read it so i don't know like Mm. do you find that's true of your writing as well like do you often think about like trying to i think in saunders book he was saying like it's this reiterative thing you just go over it and over it and over it until i love that me too i love that that. yeah I love that stuff about about the um, yeah uh, iterative kind of way that he does it. Instinctive iteration is that what he calls it? It's, it's something like I love that. it. Me too. Such a good book. Um, but I I must admit uh, I've come much more around to the yeah. I think it's Saunders. I think um, Liz Gilbert talks about it as well, mm. um, really beautifully. Sarah Santillis, who I've done a lot of work with, um, she does it too. Uh, in that idea of letting the work tell you what it wants to be. Charlotte yes, Wood has talked about this with me as well. Huge. And, yeah, I yeah, agree with and, that. And, yeah, and so rather than rather than having that very kind of, um, um, it's not uptight, but but held in, planned out. Um, you and, mean, and you, you gosh, mean like you the giant, be- Kate? <laughs> Exactly <laughs> yes, like the like giant. The giant. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly like the giant. But and and I think you can still be a plotter and a planner, and and be open to what your book is telling you. But I think it's more that that those kinds of um, outside layers and and frameworks, which um, which are easier to put on, as certainly for me, as you go along, then and you go, oh god, I see what I'm writing about now. Um, yeah, that that's that's far more of the process. Having said that, I would love to write one of those uber clever books, which is like, you know, got five different structural kind of ideas, and it's saying all this meta stuff. Like, I would love to do that, but my brain just <laughs> will not let me do it. Do you know what I mean? Like, I am not. I do. I totally I'm not get that you. smart. <laughs> totally so I have understand. to write a different kind of book. You know what? Though, and I, I love bet- reading them too. Me too. And I bet, you know, because when you talk about structurally clever, I always think of the luminaries. Yes. Oh, my God. That was just in my head. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. The luminaries. And, um, and who's the other? Why is her, why is her name gone from me? Uh, Donna Tart. You know, like Donna Tart, the goldfinch. Um, I was thinking of, of that she book just, too. What the heck? Yeah. Like <laughs> uber, uber smart women who yes, just. Yes, very. Uh, like there's maths, there is maths involved in those, in the structural things of those books as well. Yep. I can't, too much. Yeah, but see, you do though, you do in a different way, but you do that, you do that in your books. You've got the same sort of, when I read your books, I feel the same way about, that I feel about the luminaries and all that, that they just feel so Someone clever. just cut that out. I'm just putting that on my website right now. Oh, sure, sure. Uh, <laughs> no, Thanks, they just, no worries. Least, you know, they seem so clever and just born out of 
they became what they had to be structurally. And, and you think, and it- you know, if you were talking to Eleanor right now or Donna, you know, get her up on the podcast next. Do you reckon? You oh, sure, yeah, up? sure, yeah. Oh, well, you know, I've got some connects. Yeah, but they, <laughs> uh, no doubt, you know, no doubt there was. There wasn't, they they did not come out effortlessly, those books, I'm sure. No. You know, like the, the the whole the whole thing that we're aiming to do is to make it look effortless, right? That's in any yes. kind of art, in any kind of craft, mastery of any craft. It's that's what we're trying to do. Make the make the whole uh thing look like it didn't hurt at all. Like <laughs> Like you meant it the whole time. Yes, this was like, my plan. Yeah. <laughs> there it goes. Yeah. Um, I had one more question about the story. I hope we've talked about the story a bit. I feel like we've hit on the themes of the story a fair bit. We have. Um, but I had a question about what your thoughts were on, so the child that he loved the most, who we come to learn later represents Jesus. Um, he goes away in the story. And I thought that was really interesting. And then the the the, mm. the giant kind of pines after him for the whole time. Like, where has he gone? And it wasn't until I guess the giant died. I guess that links directly to Jesus, doesn't it? When you think about it, like he, yeah. you know, the, the ascension and all that stuff after the tomb and all that stuff. He he yeah. went away, and then the disciples tried to follow him, but they couldn't. But then when they died, yeah. uh, I kind of just answered my. But I was wondering what you thought of that because it's an interesting part of the story. And I was wondering what you felt. Yeah, it is an interesting part of the story. And even as you're asking me, I suppose, you know, uh, it's not clear in the book because because as per any fairy tale, we don't do a deep dive into the internals of our characters. But, you know, is the giant um, wasting wasting time and energy pining after this boy or is he living oh, life to the fullest that's you know, a very interesting that's question. question and i but i you know and, and he is like this kind of these beautiful pictures of when he is oh. in my copy of it he's got the kids on his back, on his back. um yeah and so I uh, let me read this page because i love it and when the people were going to market at 12 o'clock so this is after the giant has knocked down the the fence and yeah. when the people were going to market at 12 o'clock pause Side note, like Saunders does in his marvelous book, the specificity is the yes. other thing that kills me in this book. Right. Because I agree. they were going to market at 12 o'clock, right? They weren't just going to market, they were going to market at 12 o'clock. The, he wasn't going to see any friend, he was going to see the Cornish ogre. Ogre. Like, it's, you know, it's these things, the specifics, specificity, so important. Sorry. And I when agree. the people were going to market at 12 o'clock, they found the giant playing with the children in the most beautiful garden they had ever seen. All day long they played and in the evening they came to the giant to bid him goodbye. But where is your little companion, he said, the boy I put into the tree. The giant loved him the best because he had kissed him. We don't know, answered the children. He has gone away. You must tell him to be sure and come tomorrow, said the giant. But the children said that, that they did not know where he lived and had never seen him before and the giant felt very sad. It goes on a bit and then it says the giant was very kind to all the children yet he longed for his first little friend and often spoke of him so it's this you know Mm. i suppose he's still um he is still enjoying the beauty of the world he is still enjoying all the children but there's this um there's this sense in in reading it now i suppose which is um once one becomes aware of death and and the 
you know, how is one supposed to live their life? I suppose is the, is the question it's that, good that question, comes to yeah. me more as an adult now. Mm, um, that once you've knocked down death. the wall, yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, Oof. you know, yeah. Well, don't get too excited. Man. No, but yeah. <laughs> I thought I, I really, I really like too that it's because I think he is appreciating things, but I think he's also finding meaning in being unselfish. Because it does say yeah. the giant was very kind to all the children. So he's found a bit of meaning yeah. in giving back, which I think is a pretty yeah. beautiful thing. And something, yeah. again, that I could stand to read on a daily basis. Um, well, you know, I mentioned Sarah Centilli's before. And um, and she has an extraordinary book coming out uh, mm. called Stranger Cat. Mm. And it's the story of... Um, it's the story of... Um, how she and her partner come to foster a baby, but more so how they have to give her back. Um, and oh it's my gosh. utterly heartbreaking. But but the story is also about how we kind of extend our love and care to people that we don't know um, and to strangers. And I think I was thinking about it in the context of The Selfish Giant because what he does is ultimately, I suppose, a kind of, um, you know, radical kindness, unconditional love for the children in that he does ultimately, yeah. you know, welcome them all um, regardless of, of who they are and accepts them in. And I think certainly reading Sarah's book, it's that kind of um, life-altering kind of book where you think, oh, I can be doing life better than I'm doing it currently. And this is the kind of book that might, might show me the way to do it. Um, mm. Yeah. And I, and I think that it, there was some kind of um, communion between them in my head when I was rereading oh, wow. Giant this book as well. That's but a, I highly recommend Stranger Care to, to you uh, all. Sounds, sounds amazing. Sounds, mm. yeah, like you say, um, heartbreaking. Mm. In that, in I guess that good way that you know, and then we get to reflect on ourselves and what we know and what we yes. don't know, and I and I think the selfish giant does that too. Um, I'm really grateful that you have spent all this time talking about this with me. I don't know how long we've been talking. Do you know? Have we been talking a while? It feels a while. We have. We have actually been talking a while. This That's this amazing. is after I was like, oh my gosh, Ben's not going to have be be able to find any more than 20 minutes of questions to, t- to talk to me about this. Why did I give him such a short book? <laughs> no, it's an amazing book and I'm really grateful that you chose it. And um, I'm really, I would like to read this to my kids. They're still young enough, yeah. I think. I yeah. think it's something that would be nice to read. Yeah. In, and enjoy it and let me know what they ask you because I had the most gorgeous conversation with my 10-year-old after reading it. Um yeah. And it reminded me of being a kid, but also, oh gosh, that thing where you're like, I'm the adult now and now I have to come up with answers about all these profound questions that you're asking me and I don't know that I have them, which is why we have books. Yeah, it's to help us ask the questions that we should all be asking, yeah. right? That's good. Exactly. Um, thank you so much, Kate. I really, you know, having a burger, having a beer and spending time doing this ah. with me, it was awesome. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you, Ben. Thanks for inviting me.